Yes, last week uh, we did a current event. We talked about what does the Word of God have to say about Israel. And uh, that was, you know, when you're looking around and what's happening in the world and there's something of, uh, something of such importance on the minds of your people and in the discussions they're having and weighing on their hearts that you want to talk about it. Uh, and then this week it fell to me that this is a time of year that those in the church tradition of the Reformed faith would be celebrating uh, Martin Luther posting 95 theses on the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And so we're going to, instead of looking at a current event today, we're looking at a big event in church history going back 506 years, I believe. And uh, it's a time of the year for us nonconformists, I'll call us that, to celebrate when Luther set out to have a debate. He actually didn't set out to turn the uh, church at the time upside down, but God had that in mind. Because the issue at that time that is always of most importance to the church is the defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of it. And though Luther was a monk at the time, a young monk at the time when he did this, and he was still within the, the teaching of the Catholic Church, he knew something was wrong, both in what he saw going around him and also what was happening in him as he studied the Scriptures for himself. And so the uh, time when he posted these theses on the door was a time of, uh, for him, a time of discovery to talk it out with uh, local teachers that were in that area of Wittenberg at that university. And unbeknownst to him, why it spread like wildfire is because he had some students of his who uh, thought this would be a wonderful time to take advantage of a gift of God's common grace, the printing press you know, that came around uh, mid-1400s, and let's spread uh, this, this 95 theses, this statement that Luther came up with, and let the common folk hear about it. Because Luther was posting that in Latin, meaning it was just going to be for um, the guys in the ivory tower to discuss with him. S you know, starting first and foremost with the first thesis that was, or thesis that was in there, which was uh, his problem with a translation of Matthew 4.17, uh, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand when the church had taught it as do penance. Well, that's just no small error. But you could see how if do penance, the kingdom of God is at hand, you set yourself on a trajectory to a works-based salvation. So it was those and a host of number of issues where Luther says in, in one of them that the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. And so when he was wanting to discuss those, some of his sneaky students take them, translate them into German, and then use the printing press to disseminate them all around the town. But more people are buying them up, and two, three weeks later, they're getting all around Germany. So that caught the attention of the Roman Catholic Church, and the rest, as they say, is history. Luther became so famous, and this is when you've really hit the big time, that he actually has a statue here in Hickory, and it's over on the Lenore Rhine campus. It's a favorite place for uh, me and my kids to go as we're looking for bears on campus. That uh, They call him the big man. And so we stop there, and we, uh, we don't do penance to Luther, but I do try to teach them a little bit of their rich history of the Reformed faith. And as you can see, they're all having a great time. It's important for us today to look at this because it does make us look back and most of all be thankful for those who came before us. 
Uh, I think that precedent is established throughout Scripture when Paul is saying to remember those who taught you, imitate their faith, imitate their teaching, or in Hebrews 13, 7, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Right after that, the writer of Hebrews does say, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's all about him. I mean, he's over all of it. But there is reason for us to stop and say, wow, we wouldn't be here today with Bibles open in the faith tradition that we have, with, with the values even of our church, our mission statement being making disciples of Jesus to the glory of God, and our first value being a Christ-exalting church, our second value being a word-centered church. You don't just stumble upon that. In fact, the work of the enemy, the father of lies, would be to move your church in any direction but keeping it what? Solely focused on the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so today we're going to look at the gospel through the lens of the Protestant Reformation. And at the center of that was a statement that came, uh, it, it came centuries later. It actually wasn't until the 20th century until the five solas of the Protestant Reformation were brought into being. But they were historians looking back saying, how do we take the great teaching of the Reformation and distill it down to one statement with five features? And that's where the five souls come from. And the statement is that when we're talking about salvation, justification, how a sinner can be right before God, this is what came out of it, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, according to the scriptures alone. That sola sentence captures the heart of the gospel message. And again, it's trying to pull all the different threads together, but it captures the heart of it. But here's my point in preaching this today. It's that it would capture your heart. It's one thing for a statement to say, hey, in that one statement, if you can remember that, if you could take those five features of it and really understand those and and then want to defend the faith and proclaim the faith, you can hold a lot of these things together in that statement, but this statement also has to hold your heart together. That when you read, we are saved, that you're part of that. I'm saved. You're saved. What? By God's grace alone. Through faith alone. In Jesus Christ alone. That's how we get in. But it doesn't stop there. Beyond it, we're saved by grace through faith in Christ for the glory of God alone. So that none of us would boast according to the scriptures alone. That's where it leads to. One way coming into it to get to Christ is to say we all come the same way it's always been, by grace, through faith, in Christ. But it also leads out to saying, now I'm going to live my life for the glory of God, and I'm going to do it according to the scriptures alone. So if if this is new to you today, I just would say that I wrote this with somebody that it might be new to them in mind, that I, I want to take our time and, and describe the time and place in which this happened, but all the while with Bible open saying, look, what we're hearing about men like Luther and others we'll talk about today is coming from the scriptures. It's coming from passages like Ephesians 2. The, the, this is just, in 22 verses, unfold the gospel for us. These are the scriptures that awakened new life in Luther's heart. And we pray that they would do that in ours today as well. So follow along with me. I'll read Ephesians 2, 4 through 10 is kind of where we're going to start. And we'll go elsewhere from there. 
But it's, this really is the gospel that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, according to the scriptures alone. These are the texts that these men found, or I should say found them, that changed their lives, and I pray will change ours today. Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but this word of our God stands forever. So, what was the Protestant Reformation? You know, do you have to pick a beginning point, a central event, otherwise you're going to have a bunch of different opinions on it? And I would say for most people, uh, when that word comes up, the date, October 31st, 1517, comes up, and Martin Luther's name comes up. It's not saying that there wasn't, as in any historical event, a ton of preceding events that precipitated it, but it is to say, hey, if we've, got to, if we've got to put our finger on one thing and start from there, and you can move backward and you can move forward, but you start there. The second thing to know is just don't, don't overthink the thing. The phrase itself, Protestant Reformation. Well, you get the word protest in there. And that's what it was. It was a dispute. It was, it was Luther, the young monk, who was saying, I've got some problems with what I'm hearing taught and what I'm seeing lived around me, and we need to talk about it. So it was a protest. But it wasn't meant to be one that was going to split the church, which was in that time, the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages from 500 to 1500 for a thousand years was the single dominant influence in all of Christendom. And for us to feel the impact of, of what Luther was doing in this moment, yet what he didn't necessarily set out to intend to do, um, if you were to go back in a time machine and arrive on the day of October 31st, 1517, and to say, hey, Luther, you know what's really cool? And he's like, what's the word cool? Um, you know what's amazing, Luther? Um, what you're going to do is not just reform the church, you're going to split it forever. And there's going to be these two streams, one called Catholic and Protestant, because of what you're protesting. And he wouldn't have fist bumped you. Uh, it would have been unimaginable for Luther to think of the church divided. How do we feel the weight of that this morning? It would have met with the same type of, you're out of this world if you think that's what's going to happen, is if I said to you today, hey, you know what's cool? In five years, all the church is going to be united again. Catholics, Lutherans, Anglicans, Pentecostals, all of us are going to unite again. And you're smiling. Some of you laughing, going, not a chance. The same way you would feel about that statement today is the way that Luther would have felt opposite in his day. He's like, whoa, whoa, what are you saying I'm about to do? 
No way. The church has to be united. You don't just divide this thing, but it doesn't hit our ears in the same way because people might leave the church today because I wore a tie. Or last week that I didn't wear a tie. I could just jump in my car, Google some kind of Bible teaching church, and I'll drive down the street. Well, you weren't doing that back then. I mean, the thought of leaving the church for something different would be you walking away from everything. And so here's Luther doing this in this time, protesting this and trying to reform, not the split, in a way that was necessary because of the loss of the heart of the gospel. Justification by faith alone. And so what he was protesting against and trying to reform was two things. Doctrinal corruption in the gospel, because when that's lost, sinners stay damned. And moral corruption. Well, if you've lost the gospel, then you're going to lose the what? The life-transforming power of the gospel. Right? You're just going to stay dead in your sins. But even worse is you think you're fine. You think you're working your way to heaven. And so he saw moral corruption around him as well that also grieved his heart. So those were the two things that were motivating him. But at the same time, he wasn't just trying to burn the whole thing down. He was actually trying to build it stronger and work by way of starting with these 95 theses. And as I read the first one before, starting with, look, let's just talk about repentance. It's not penance. This isn't about merit. Which brings us to the first of the five solas, sola gratia. We are saved by grace alone. Grace comes first in this list of talking about justification before a holy God. Because apart from the grace of God, no sinner has any moral merit or inherent goodness in him to seek after God. And this would have been clear when, Rome, when, when Luther in his testimony is this, is this lecturer at Wittenberg, is, is this monk who is set apart to know God and to study his word. And he says, I would pound upon the book of Romans trying to see how I, this awful sinner, could be acceptable before God. But he would read passages like Romans 3. All are under sin, Jew or Greek. None are righteous. No, not one. So no, no inherent righteousness in us. That's a problem. What am I to do? Try to understand more, but then it says there's no one who understands. Try to seek harder, it says there's no one who seeks. All have turned aside. Try to be useful to God, together they've become useless. Try to be good before God, there is none who does good. Do you see what he's facing? He took the word of God serious, and it left him broken and hopeless. And it starts with, well, does this thing start with my merit and my inherent goodness that I'm going to seek after God? Does he, in an act of grace, have to move towards me? Which way does God flow? Which way does the grace flow? Is it from God to us, or does it ask to be something from me back to God? Well, just look one chapter back in Ephesians to chapter 1. If you want a summary of chapter 1 of Ephesians, it's the word grace. And grace flows from heaven to the sinner, not the other way around. Just the first 
few verses is, is Paul is caught up in blessing, extolling, praising God in Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's given us every spiritual blessing in Christ, in the heavenly places. Where's the origin point? It's heaven. It's not down here. And, and who does it start with? Us choosing God? No, he says God chose us in him. Who did he choose us in? In Christ. Before the foundation of the world. How do you possibly think your salvation then could start with you in time and space in the choice you're going to make when the clear scripture teaching that Martin Luther's reading is saying it's starting with grace coming from him before the foundation of the world. But where does it all lead? Verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ to himself. According to my intentions of my will? Nope. Still flowing down from heaven. According to the kind intention of God's will. But here's the grace. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Where does the gracious plan from God the Father lead to his glorious grace being praised? It's all of grace. How about the work of the Son in the next verse? This grace was freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Freely bestowed. Earned? Merited? Deserved? Freely given. By the beloved, the Son. In the Son, in Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, again, according to the riches of His grace. According to the worth of my merit, something in me that made Christ want to die for me, moved him to die for me, he saw some, some shred of righteousness in Adam that was worth saving. It's not the way grace flows in Ephesians chapter 1. It's to the praise of God the Father's grace. It's according to the riches of Jesus' grace. So grace, sola gratia, saved by grace alone, is the starting point in salvation because God saves sinners not due to anything worthy of praise in us, but everything worthy of praise in Him. That's why we sing praises to Him this morning. Because everything in Him is worthy of praise. It doesn't originate with me. Now, speaking of origins, this... this Grace alone idea didn't originate with Luther. It actually goes back a thousand years to a theological debate between St. Augustine of Hippo and a British monk named Pelagius. Now, these two disagreed over whether man could seek and secure righteousness apart from God's grace. Pelagius taught that grace wasn't necessary for man to be morally right before God. He believed that man wasn't born with um, inherent sin, that he was born morally neutral, in equal capacity for good or evil. He denied man's sinfulness from birth, did not believe Adam passed on a sin nature. He passionately opposed Augustine's famous prayer, let God give what he commands and command what he wills. He, this is his summary statement of his starting point when he looks at man. Whenever I have to speak on the subject of moral instruction and the conduct of a holy life, it is my practice first to demonstrate the power and quality of human nature. What's Pelagius teaching? He's saying there's something still good in us. That's the starting point. When I'm going to teach on a holy life, I have to show people that there's still something good in them. What did Augustine teach? Well, he taught Romans 3, 9, and 10. 
Can we possibly, without utter absurdity, maintain that there first existed in anyone the good virtue of a good will to entitle him to the removal of his heart of stone? What's the root of Augustine's response? Going back to Scripture, going back to Ezekiel, saying our problem is we have a heart of stone. You want to exegete what a heart of stone would be like? You knock and nothing answers. It stays that hard. But he's saying if there's something good in our hearts, then that, that renders a moot point, this idea that we're going to do anything or choose something out of goodwill. You no longer have a heart of stone. That hardest stone, he says, is a will that is absolutely inflexible against God. For Augustine, man can no more move towards God, he said, than an empty vessel fill itself up. If I brought a cup up here on stage with not a drop of H2O in it and said, hey, check this out, it's going to fill itself. Why can't it do that? There's nothing in there to begin with. Something from the outside in has to fill it. It'd be as ludicrous as me saying, I'm going to jump off this stage and go up. See, just as grace has to flow down from heaven, we can try to go up to heaven, but the nature of our sin makes us go only in one direction, even in our best efforts. Augustine saw in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, right before where we started our reading this morning, when he saw that word dead, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He couldn't move past it. That man's natural condition isn't something that he can change on his own. That we're not merely sick patients in a hospital ward needing some type of cure. We're not merely lost wanderers in the darkness of night trying to find a path to get home. We're not merely broken and bankrupt investors just looking around trying to find a way to get out of debt. Because to use any of those pictures doesn't encapsulate one very important thing. We are dead people needing raised to life. See, the difference is all those other ways you can describe it, that person at least has a shot. The sick person, given enough time, may be able to find a cure on their own. The broken, bankrupt person, given enough time, can make their money back. But the dead person being given enough time, being given an eternity of time, cannot do what for themselves? Bring themselves back to life. Augustine saw in the Bible that the grace of God is absolutely necessary for any work in a sinner's heart. And church history shows that he won the debate. But more importantly, the doctrine of God's grace won the day when in AD 1418, the heretical teachings of Pelagius were condemned by the Council of Carthage. It was that doctrine of grace alone that Luther found his first gospel footing a millennia later. And then 300 years after Luther... Another powerful gospel preacher in the 1800s at the heart of his preaching, Charles Spurgeon, taught on the necessary doctrine of grace alone when he said this, Let this be to you the mark of true gospel preaching, where Jesus Christ is everything and the creature is nothing, where salvation is all of grace, through the work of the Holy Spirit, applying to the soul the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The grandest discourse ever delivered is an ostentatious failure. 
if the doctrine of the grace of God be absent from it. That's the starting point. But it's not the ending point. These five solas build. As I said before, we're first talking about, when we talk about being saved, the the gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation, what first gets us in? The starting point is grace alone, but then it moves to faith alone. The second phrase in the five solas is about the means by which we receive God's grace. Faith is means through which God's unmerited favor is delivered to the sinner. Look back in Ephesians chapter 2. It's the important preposition through. Instrumentation. For by grace you've been saved. There's the starting point, but here's where it moves. Through faith. And even that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. When when Paul even brings being saved through faith into the equation, he still has to say even that faith is the gift of God, not a result of your works. So that why? You can't boast even in your responsibility of faith to respond. It's still a boast in God. It's still a boast in Christ. Paul also, I mean, similarly in Galatians 2.16, warning of the danger of working for merit with God, earning your way, he says, knowing that man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So back to Luther in the 1600s, this was so significant for him that he taught or said it was, it was not written directly by him but quoted by students of him that he would often say, justification by faith alone is the article on which the church of Jesus Christ stands or falls. One of his contemporaries a decade or so later, John Calvin, would say something similar when he used the picture to say, justification by faith alone is the hinge on which salvation turns. But the key phrase there is faith alone, not faith plus works. And if there were any person to find a way for works to be part of it, it was the dedicated, devout Martin Luther. But yet, in all the work he attempted to do, he found himself still unable to feel that God was pleased with them. He knew that this righteousness that, that Romans especially speaks of was just something he could never attain to on his own apart from God, and it infuriated him. Looking back from 1545 or so, he writes this of his testimony from probably 30 years prior, 1515, when he was teaching through Galatians and Romans. This was his, he's a teacher, and yet this is what he's wrestling with internally. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, I was angry with God. Thus, I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. This is Romans 1.16. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he through faith is righteous shall live. There is where I began to understand light was coming into his mind, divine light. That the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, by faith. See, prior to that, he thought the righteousness was God was something that only could condemn him because he couldn't live up to it. He couldn't be righteous enough. And yet he was called to do it. And then he says, no, this is by faith. By which the merciful God justifies us by faith. He through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and entered paradise itself through open gates. 
That was a long quote, but it was a vital one to understand for Luther, this wasn't merely academic. I mean, he's just not trying to, to, to build his platform as we would call it today. This was life to him. He, he was staking his very life, eternal life, but even his physical life, on this teaching that, as I highlighted earlier, was going to turn the world upside down. Because as, as these students that I mentioned circulated this around, again, put yourself back in the shoes of a person in Germany. How do you, how do you come to know anything you've learned about God? Through the one true church. And through trusting your local priest. And, and through trusting uh, a guy like uh, Johann Tetzel, who was the one who came through town, that you know, was the straw that broke the camel's back of Luther, when he runs into some drunk parishioner that he knew, laying in the gutter, and he's rebuking him for it, and the guy holds out his piece of paper in an indulgence that because of the printing press, also they have some good with the printing press and some bad, rather than it being handwritten, he can now make mass copies. And Tetzel is raising money to pay for a remodeling of St. Peter's Basilica you know, by the request of Pope. And this drunk and holds his hand out, as tradition says, and says, all my sins, past, present, and future, absolved because of this. And it broke Luther's heart. So when he discovers the gospel of grace and faith, I mean, it's not just to revolutionize everybody out around him. It's first changing his own heart. He says, faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and certain that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times. And he did. So we may grasp the beginnings of solas, uh, the five solas. We may grasp them with our heads. But in, in this moment, does it grasp your heart? This is the heart of your faith. That when you really think about it. How's it any different for you right now? How else do you come to Christ? Do you approach Christ? But by saying completely His grace. And all I can say is the, the, the gift of faith that I responded, not of my own doing, but all of His. Praise Him. That's how we get in. That's, that's where faith points. Who's a point to? What brings us to solus Christus? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. The high point, this is the high point of the five solas. Uh, by grace through faith just gets you there. But it's always the object of your faith that saves. Um, the, the five solas didn't die on the cross, in case you were wondering. Jesus died on the cross. So we're not here this morning just paying homage and worshiping doctrine. It's the doctrine that describes the glory of Jesus Christ. That the Son of God came to earth, lived as a man, fully man and fully God. Lived that perfect life that we couldn't live. Perfectly obeyed God's law in every way. So that we could understand the fullness of it. Yes, we need these solas. But these solas are only what? Just, just bringing into full color all that was accomplished on the cross for sinners. So that's why Solus Christus stands at the middle of it. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Um, I, I try to teach my kids. I was teaching, a, there was a Reformation party that went down yesterday. It was a rager. I mean, it was, it was huge. It was awesome. Candy, food, 
kids running around learning about Martin Luther and the 95 Theses, and I, they asked me to teach. And this is how I teach re- little kids to remember it, uh, the five solas. Maybe it'll help you. By grace alone, thumbs up. Right? Somebody gives you thumbs up. You didn't do anything to deserve it. Grace. You can do it with me if you want. It's fun. Through faith. Where's my finger pointing? Back to me? No, it's pointing outside of me. Where's it point to? Third one. Points to the, the highest of the three. It points to Christ. He stands tall over it all. And so for a little kid to understand, hey, salvation, what's it about? It's about first God's grace, not about your goodness. And it's about pointing away from yourself and putting your faith in someone beside you. Who should I point to? Some, some really great person that teaches me? Some really inspiring moral example? No, it points to a Savior who hung on a cross and died for your sins. See, the problem in Luther's time was people of, that, of the Catholic faith were putting their trust in things in addition to Christ. Works of charity, pilgrimages to Rome, acts of self-denial, prayers to saints, relics and indulgences. They wouldn't have walked around saying, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures, or for the glory of God alone, according to the Scriptures alone. They would have taken the word alone out, and they would have put a similar word in. Along. You ever see that thing that sometimes goes around, like the internet, or you know, change one letter and change everything? What happens when you change alone to along? This is what it would sound like. I'm saved by grace, along with faith, along with works, along with Christ, along with the sacraments, according to the Pope, along with the Bible. And so by adding all those things to Christ, what do you end up doing? You end up subtracting. Because if you think anything needs to be added to Jesus Christ and what he did for your righteousness, I love you, but you don't understand the gospel. It was Christ alone in his righteous life, in his substitution for sinners on the cross, that is all of your standing now and forever. I mean, one of the hardest things that I had to come to grips with in my own life, as as a young believer in my teens, when I would sin, there was this weight that I would have, sometimes at night, praying like, "Is, is there a sin that I've not confessed? that I'm leaving out, that if I die? Or is there one that I could commit sometime in the day and the last thing I would do on planet Earth would, would commit some sin? Where am I going? That makes it Christ plus something else, doesn't it? But, but if you're in Christ today, can you fathom this? That you could leave here, commit some unimaginable sin today in your last breath on Earth. Where do you go? You go to heaven. And why do you go there? Because of Christ's righteousness for you. So do you really have to be, if you're in Christ, I'm saying, every day on this up and down, oh man, I mean, if I go today, it's been a pretty good day. Read my Bible, served somebody else, had pure thoughts. Yeah, I'm all right today. What if you have your worst day? Hated somebody in your heart? Uh, was ashamed to share the gospel when you had the chance? Whatever, you name it. If you're in Christ and you die in that moment, do you have enough righteousness to get into heaven? In Christ you do. 
And that's where your hope is found. That's why he stands tall in the midst of it all. It's faith in Christ's righteousness alone that saves you. As I said, it's what gets you in. And that's why we rejoice in the gospel. That's why, that's why Luther said, even at the beginning of his thesis, however he understood this in, in, in small form, that the Christian life is a life of repentance. Well, that doesn't mean like, okay, I have to every single second be repenting my sin. I have to every single second understand that the repentance, the faith that I've put in Jesus Christ, reminds me that I am good with God because He's accepting me on behalf of Christ's righteousness, not my own. I mean, again, study this on your own this week. If you think your righteousness and, and the goodness and grace of God comes to you any other way but by grace, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 is one long sentence in the original Greek, and all of it centers on you being found in Christ. Right from his hope, even before verse 3. Verse 1, when he's just greeting the saints, he says to the saints in Ephesus who are faithful in themselves, oh, I've heard about you guys, you're really good people. That's not what he says when he greets them. He says you're faithful in Christ Jesus. That's where your faithfulness comes from. You're found in Him. And then you just go through that first chapter that every spiritual blessing is in Christ, that we're chosen in Him, that we are loved in Him, adopted as sons through Him, that we are, we are free, grace gives, comes to us bestowed in the beloved, in Him we have redemption. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on and it all comes back to the same idea. We are in Christ and in that we have all the righteousness we'll ever need. I mean, you've heard the saying, especially if you're a young person coming out of college and you're trying to figure out how am I going to land that good job, and usually uh, people that know anything about landing that good job, get good grades, kids, and all that stuff. You know, dress up for your interview. Um, don't say, um. But they will say this. You know, when it comes down to it, it's who you know. And um, I think that's in some ways when you read Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, when you keep seeing in Him, in Christ, in Him, in Christ, is really what Paul's trying to get across about your salvation. It's who you know. Uh, if you've ever had this experience in life where you're invited into a place that you do not belong, and the only way you get in through the door is because of somebody you know on the inside. I was uh, in my early years of living in California. My brother was a first lieutenant on an army base out there. And um, it was an armpit of California, Barstow. And then from the armpit, you drive like another 30 minutes into it. And you're in the desert. Uh, Mojave, it's hot. There's nothing. But he was the assistant to the general and they were having a banquet in the general's honor. You know, a guy with like a lot of stuff on, on his suit. Pretty important guy. And for a civilian to show up, I don't know why my brother invited me to this day. I was attempting to be a pirate in Hollywood. Not succeeding either, other than the long hair. And I show up at his army base somewhere in like a Tommy Bahama flamingo shirt and shorts, sandals. And I'm, the good times are rolling. And I get to the gate. What are you doing here? Um, brother's first lieutenant, assistant to the general. He invited me to come. Oh, you can come in. Aaron Ashoff, yeah, you're in. Pulled down, park, go over to the banquet. There's the general. There's to his one side, his wife, to the other side, my brother. And there's a line of guys greeting this general at this banquet for him. And there's me in line, like 10th. I just needed a free meal. And um, I get up there. And the guy's just, I could see it in his face. What is this guy doing here? And I'll never forget my brother's introduction. General Cohn, this is 
Adam, my brother, the pirate. To which his wife got a kick out of. But I think of that when I'm talking about being, like who you know and being in Christ. Like everything I got that day was because of my brother. I allowed in, in the line, shake the hand, have the meal, sit at the table. None of those blessings came to me anyway outside of Aaron. So you see what Paul's doing here about being in Christ? Any spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, you name it, you have it in him. Redemption, forgiveness, sanctification, all of it. In Christ, outside of it, nothing. Absolute zero. No redemption, no forgiveness, no salvation, no inheritance, no hope, no promise. Everything in Him, nothing outside of Him. That's the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So do you believe that today? That you cannot be saved by any works of the law apart from faith in Christ? Whatever church background you have and you're here today, do you really at the heart of it believe that no good works will ever be enough to save you? Only Christ's perfect work can. So when you see the law of God and you see the call to be righteous as he is righteous and holy as holy, is the first instinct in your heart humility and brokenness? I'm a sinner and I can't do it. Okay, you're on the right path. But you also have to see where that path leads. It's not to just look down and see yourself and your own sinfulness. It's what? It's to look to Christ in faith and say, there is my righteousness. There's where it is. It's in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when he said it was finished on the cross, that was enough merit, if you want to call it merit, goodness, righteousness, whatever you want to call it, for me and for any who put their faith in him to go to heaven and be with him forever. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior this morning, that's what you need to know. That's what you need to believe. That's what you need to confess with your mouth. Sitting there right now in that seat, in your heart, I'm a great sinner, but Christ, you're a greater Savior. Have mercy mercy to me, O God. Look to Christ and be saved. For those that have done it this morning, there's nothing better than being reminded of this. First from the scriptures, of course, but then seeing that we stand in that same line in church history of anybody else who, as we talked about last week in Romans 11.33, that have dug into the depths of the riches of God's wisdom in the gospel and come up singing his praise. Oh, how unsearchable, unsearchable. Wow, what a word. But you know, when it comes to the gospel, come up with new words. How unsearchable. Where does this move us to? We've come to the center point of it, the object of our faith, Christ alone. Well, then it's for the glory of God alone, soli deo gloria, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And maybe you're like, wait, what's, what do I do with my fourth finger? Well, one, two, three, for the glory of God alone. That's how you remember it. So how we get into Christ is by grace through faith in him. But where does it go from here? Because a lot of people get hung up on the idea, and rightly so, where they say, man, that grace sounds like a pretty good deal, so once I get in, I don't got to do anything. No. If we're talking about your salvation, correct, as in it's all of his righteousness given to you. But if we're talking about growing in Christ, the fruit and the evidence that you actually have been changed is you now want to live for the glory of God. And Luther himself said it. We're not made righteous by doing righteous deeds, but when we have been made righteous, we do righteous deeds. 
We're saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. As in, once you have become a Christian, born again, you have what? A new heart, new desires, new mind, and you want to live for the glory of God, except for those moments as a Christian when your sin wants you to live for your own glory. But that preposition, for the glory of God, it's purpose. We're living for His glory now, not our own. Now, where do you want to see this in Scripture? Just go back to Ephesians 2. Right after verses 8 and 9, where we find that all of our grace, all of God's grace, being saved through faith in Christ alone so that we don't boast in ourselves, where does it lead? Living for the glory of God, Ephesians 2.10. There's the word for. Paul's just saying it differently. Behind the scenes in your salvation, you're doing what you do now to the glory of God. But what do people see? Verse 10, they see God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. See, now this is you get in by grace through faith in Christ. You go out living for the glory of God, not for your own. That's the aim of the gospel, that we would be saved and set apart to bring more glory to God. First, we have to understand just how wonderful the glory of God is. That it's not just something that he wants to be seen, but he wants it to be seen and celebrated. Uh, if you want a name and a person to study on the glory of God, no better than Jonathan Edwards, American Puritan, 1700s, his life was all about the glory of God. I mean, that's what he wanted to preach on, write on, think on. He has this statement where he summarizes it. God is glorified not only by His glory being seen, but by it being rejoiced in when those that see it delight in it. Now, we see the glory of God, as 2 Corinthians 4 teaches, in the face of Christ. But it's not enough to just see the glory of Christ and be like, sure, he was, he was a great person. It's to rejoice in it, meaning you delight in Christ. You love Christ. You have affections for Christ. And that's he's saying, that's where God's glory is, is most wonderfully celebrated. To see it and celebrate it. Beams of glory come from God and then return back to him again to their original. Embodies Romans 11.36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Now that sounds really pie in the sky. But Luther was a faithful teacher also that that glory of God that we live for should show up in our nine to five. It wasn't the exclusive property of the monks and the priests, the preachers and the teachers. This is what Luther taught on the sacred nature of all work when we do it out of our faith for the glory of God. What you do in your house is worth as much as if you did it in heaven for the Lord God. That's good. Do you believe that? If, if, you're, if your work, for whatever reason, has you working in your house, serving your family, working somewhere around Hickory, serving this city. What you do in your house is worth as much as if you did it in heaven for our Lord God. We should accustom ourselves to think of our position and work as sacred and well-pleasing to God, not on account of the position and work itself, aha, but on account of the word and faith from which the obedience and the work flow. I mean, that's the heart of 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do to the glory of God. Do you feel that about your nine to five? Just as sacred is this hour and a half we get together here. Why? Because you are his workmanship, created to do good works with all 168 hours of your week. Now, a lot of those are sleeping, so sleep to the glory of God, meaning some of you just like get off your phone and go to sleep, you know, and wake up to the glory of God. Make that cup of coffee to the glory of God. Joy, enjoy two of them if you want to the glory of God. I mean, think how much glory you can bring to him before you even go to your nine to five. Now, I know you might be sitting there saying, hey, preacher boy, 
Uh, your nine to five is actually you studying these five solas and then telling us about them. Like, yeah, you really can live to the glory of God in your job. Try mine. And I did think about that. It came to my mind. It could sound really easy for me to say that because of what I do. Where, you know, getting to study, getting to preach. But I thought, you know, how awful it would be if I thought of my life that way. You know, that my um, nine to five or coming here this morning is really the sacred part, the holy part. You know, but when I go home and put on sweats today and the kids are tugging on me like, hey, let's go catch football. And I'm like, ah. Am I going to love my wife and kids today to the glory of God and see it just as necessary and wonderful to His glory as what I'm doing right now? Getting involved in my kid's life? Coaching his football team to the glory of God and to the record of one in seven? But I mean, it's, I mean, if you can lose badly to the glory of God, come talk to me. I'm trying to still figure it out. But I do talk to my sons on the way to the game. And I say, hey guys, 1 Corinthians 10.31, I want to give it a paraphrase. Whatever we do today, coach or player, win or lose, happy with the refs or mad at them, do it to the glory of God. Because I want them to believe that what I preach up here, I practice. And that's all the time. And that's for all of us. Living for the glory of God each hour of the day. Now, if I did my part today, you're like, where does Sola Scriptura fit into this? Really, it would be self-evident that whatever we have said today, whatever those historians pulled together for these five solas, well, what, what's underneath it all? Well, that's the, you know, five fingers now you put up there. And you say, according to the Scriptures alone, we hold the Word of God in our hand, and that's what undergirds everything we just talked about. We didn't just pull it out of the sky. Saying that justification... It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, according to the Scriptures alone. It comes last on the list, not because it's not important, because you, you turn your hand this way and you pretend the Bible's in it and you say, whatever I just said for the last 45 minutes, if it didn't come from here, you don't need to listen to it. Because sola scriptura, at its heart, was saying that the final word that we have, from Augustine to Luther to Edwards to Spurgeon, whoever it is, God's word is the last word. Not the magisterium, which was the teaching authority of the Roman Catholic Church. And so if you, you said, hey, who gets the last word? Who puts the last blow in? And you, you create some type of royal rumble, you know, where you got the Bible on one side of the ring. And then you could throw everything else you want in there to go up against the Bible. The Pope, the archbishops, the Apocrypha, tradition, relics. And it's one man take on all. And guess who the last man standing in the ring is going to be? Body slams, throwing them out. The Word of God stands above them all. It's the final authoritative word for us, for all of life. And I know some of people get you know, caught up on, does that mean like I don't need like a, a mechanic to help me you know, with my car? Where's that at in Scripture again? It's not saying that. You know, I need help knowing how to fertilize my lawn this time of year, and I'm not finding it in the Bible. At least I haven't yet. But it is saying that the final authority, when we're teaching and, and somebody's coming with, well, I think it's this, well, I think it's that, as you know, small groups can tend to be, discipleship relationships. Hey, who gets the final word here? Rightly interpreted and applied, Scripture is the final word. I think just a moment to reflect on that is to then say how thankful we should be that we have the Bible in our hands. Um, 
you know, if you put yourself again back in the time of Luther when he's doing this, uh, <laughs> and um, you're like, hey, Luther, what's your quiet time like? Come again? Maybe not Luther, because, you know, he was a teacher, but, you know, you're hanging with your homies in Wittenberg, and uh, you're Christians, and you're like, hey, how's your Bible reading going? And he's like, what Bible? I don't even know how to read. Historians say it best, you had a 20% literacy rate at that time in the world. And somebody have their own copy of the scriptures? Not a chance. I mean, the printing press is coming along, but it's, is it going to get translated yet into the language of the people? It's not. And, and so when we think of the gift that we have of having a Bible in our hands right now and being able to have a quiet time, and we just know by using that phrase, we're, hey, how's the Bible reading going? What are you learning in the Word of God? Again, just to put some context around how revolutionary it was for what Luther did. Because you didn't, you didn't know it. In, you didn't read it for yourself. You trusted the authorities, the magisterium. And now Luther is putting in the language of the people and it's going around like wildfire saying, wait, we've been taught the wrong thing. Here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a few decades later, now you are getting copies of the Bible going around and it's in their own tongue and they're learning it and rejoicing in it. So could we rejoice a little more in having this today? And just to be able to enjoy it, I'm not saying this isn't a guilt trip for your devotional time. It's a grace trip. Like how amazing is it that men like William Tyndale gave his life so that there could be an English Bible in defiance of the Pope when he said, you know what, one day the plowboy will have more authority with his own copy of the scriptures than you will as the Pope. And he was right. Back to Luther, you know, he believed with all his heart that if you just trusted what you have in front of you in the Word of God, then what you see as a result, you can give all praise and glory and credit to God. He, near the end of his life, he wrote this about where the credit was due. And this is what he said, Take me for example. I opposed indulgences and all papists, but never by force. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with Philip of Amsdorf, the word... Now, hey, don't get lost on the beer comment. You actually don't know. This might have been a slight back to the Pope because at first, the first time it was said that the Pope heard about this monk, this no-name over in Germany, posting 95 theses. And one of the archbishops came back to the Pope and said, what do you want me to do with this guy? And he goes, those are nothing but the rants of a drunken German monk. So decades later, when Luther is looking back, maybe that was a little slight where he said, yeah, you know, that drunken German monk that you didn't need to worry about, you were right. Because I'm not the explanation for what, this ha what just happened here. The word of God's the explanation. Never a prince or emperor did such damage. I did nothing, the word did it all. Had I wanted to start trouble, I could have started such a little game at Worms that even the emperor wouldn't have been safe. But what would it have been if it was about me? A mugs game. You know, because he didn't think he was anything. I did nothing, I left it to the word. I mean, that's, that's why when we say according to the scriptures, because we know that's where the power is. It's the Spirit taking the Word and doing the work. And then you see your life transformed as a result. I mean, why we're doing the biblical counseling class, why we want to equip you in the Word each week, go back to life group with it, is because what? 
we know it's going to do the work. If your heart is humble and you're teachable and you're diving into it to see the riches of its depths, it'll do the work. You've got to believe it. I mean, it did the work to turn the course of history around in the church. You don't think it could turn your life around? So be a lover of the Word. Be a lover of history. Be inspired by others. If you want to go to the bookstore this morning, we got some of the names that I've mentioned. Oh, by the way, you're probably run, wondering like, hey, Adam, around campus, I, I see some names. I don't see Luther's name. I had to think about that for a second this week. I'm like, oh, yeah, we, nothing's named... So here's what Luther gets. Luther gets the parking lot. We'll call it Luther's lot from now on. Why? Because it's the foundation, right? Anything, any other name we put on a, on a room around campus, we could say, hey, he, he laid the foundation. Like, hey, what about that guy, Calvin? Well, we're giving him the freezer where all the elect meets go. And, um, but we got Ryle, we got Spurgeon over there, the Whitfield Auditorium. And as years go by, hopefully I'll get a chance to maybe highlight each guy's work individually. But you can't talk about the Protestant Reformation and the five solas without starting with Luther. Not something, somebody that we want to idolize, but somebody that we do want to imitate. Because Scripture calls us to that. And he left a legacy for us. And I was listening to a historian talk about after Tim Keller died, what's his legacy going to be? And they were talking about his books and they were talking about his preaching. And the historian said, you know what the true legacy of a person is? It's actually in the people he leaves behind. You're part of the legacy of the Reformation. You have a chance in whatever little sphere God has placed you to stand in that legacy of people's lives being transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is there anything more amazing than that in the world? That you're the legacy of it. We may not get the press, our individual lives, like Luther is 500 years from now, but we don't know yet. Story's not finished. But we're not doing it to be in the press, are we? We're doing it for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for how we can see it through the lens of history. We can see how passages in Romans and Ephesians and wherever else we could open up to, in the same way that we are moved in our hearts by them this morning, you did that 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago. As Peter said, we have a more sure thing. We have your word. And we trust it. We know that it endures. Points us to you, Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So now as we turn our hearts to sing, Christ, for your glory, may we do it with hearts that are just so touched and moved by grace that reached out and found us. And by the gift of faith you gave to us. And by the Removal of our sins, past, present, and future, not because we paid for it. Christ, you paid for it. All praise and glory to your name. Amen.